lives were ever shopped to Hollywood, who gets to play us in a movie? Come on, you've thought about it. You just don't want to admit it. Every dude's picking George Clooney. The guy never seems to get uglier the older he gets. I don't get it. I don't know who the women are picking because there's just, I don't know. But where this is a good looking room. You all have been compared to somebody in Hollywood before, I'm sure. So who plays you? The, the more important thing and probably the more relatable piece of that, though, is that all of our stories, as they are scripts, our scripts include peril. Um, we have the, the ebbs and flows of life. We have difficulties in our lives. So we relate when we see a story on screen or we read one in a book that all of those stories need to include some element of drama. How boring would it be if the couple gets together at the beginning of the movie and we just watch them kind of have a normal life. We, we get to peek in on how often they're Netflixing all the time throughout the week or whether or not the beef stroganoff was, you know, impressive or something like that. Like the boring mundane things of life would not make for a good movie. And while some of us have sort of that settled down existence, but, but all of us can relate to drama coming in and out of our story. I mean, if, if the guy never has to chase the girl to the airport, right? Because that's going to be in every one of those movies. Someone's going to wake up to the reality, I can't let her go. And then he's going to show up at her apartment and her, and her friends are going to say, you just missed her. She flies out in an hour. So dude's running through the airport trying to catch the love of his life. All right, just a side note. This is not in my notes and I'm going to try to make up for it in other places. But ladies, you know, we're in an era of, of you know, female empowerment and all these kinds of things and stuff. And yet we let these dirt bags be the main guy in the movie. He can be whoever he wants. And then she's going to change him right at the end. She's been kind of a good girl the whole time. He's been a dirt bag. She rescues him. I'm tired of that script. We got to change that up. If I'm going to be forced to watch chick flicks, we got to change that thing up. <laughs> anyway, I digress. You notice, though, how Hollywood loves to write in the self-rescuer, the, the hero, the, the, the hero that's going to, while the buildings are falling and the flames are bursting and the smoke is rising, one guy's walking through that. He's got the weight of the world on his shoulders and he's saving the day. And, and, and as cheesy and as unrealistic as that is to us, we're still drawn to those movies. Sometimes we say we need a good action flick or we need to see that person come through and, and actually rescue the day because there is something created within us that wants to worship a hero. That's, that's who we are. That's how we're made. And so we look for that. And so as often as Hollywood continues to pump that out in a script, it still satisfies us to some extent. I think because of the longing that's in our hearts. The, the problem is, is our stories are being shopped around, if you will, that you and I are too tempted for us to be the main character in our stories. You say, well, it's my story. But this is the point is that in the biblical narrative of our lives, when you and I are the heroes or the main focus in our story, things start to get off track and they don't go so well for us. And then other people around the effect that's supposed that it's supposed to have of a great story doesn't have that effect. So the Apostle Paul, as he's getting us into the, the beginning of this letter that we call 2 Corinthians, he's going to tell a recent story of his peril because he had plenty. But what he's going to do is he's going to write himself out of the script. 
in order to encourage his fellow saints, his dear friends, those that are reading this letter, to look for the true hero in the story. And so as he tells this story, he's going to clue us in on to, on, into several truths that we're going to highlight as we move through this. We have to remember, though, that Paul, as an apostle, was uniquely set aside to endure suffering. We've talked about this the last couple of Sundays. To establish his apostleship, we understand from uh, Acts chapter 9, if you haven't read that account yet, it's a great backstory for you to understand where we're going in 2 Corinthians, and I think that might be listed in your notes this morning. But Acts chapter 9, particularly in verses 15 and 16, the Lord is telling the other disciples, the ones who have been tracked down, they've been persecuted, they've been under pressure by Paul. Paul is giving his entire life and his, and his, and his, uh, energies towards chasing down and shutting down the church of Jesus Christ. Remember we said that Acts refers to him as the people of the way. Paul is running hard down that path of shutting down the way. Jesus interferes. The resurrected Christ puts Paul on his heels and says, stop persecuting me. Stop going after me. Instead, I'm going to remove your, your sight. I'm going to change Saul was his original name to Paul so that you have a new life and you have a new pursuit. You're chasing down a new route road. You're going to be serving me instead. And Paul says, aye, aye, captain. And is converted like that. And, and all of that zeal is now moving in the direction of serving the Lord's church, serving the people of the way. But they're not quite convinced of that yet. Would you be? If you had all, somebody that was after you with all the power of the government and the authority that could get you know, And all of a sudden he says, hey, I want to come to your service on Sunday. We're, we would say, I'm not falling for that trick. You guys have come up with a scheme in a back room somewhere. So God had to tell those that were going to receive Paul in verses 15 and 16 of Acts chapter 9. The Lord says, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him, this is the point of this, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So with that background in mind, we come to 2 Corinthians, and we're going to pick up in verse 8 as we move along. Paul says to his friends, For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction that we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. I love how Paul reminds them, you're my brothers, but here's what I want you to clue in on. I can't have you ignore the fact that I've gone through some intense suffering, so intense that I was utterly burdened beyond my own strength. I despaired of life itself. We don't know exactly what these afflictions are. And some that have studied the words of Paul have inferred a few other things of of possibilities. Paul's gone through a lot of hardships. So this particular event in Asia is a little unclear, but it was a little also unhelpful for me to see what some of the other ideas were. Some were looking a little too specifically or too narrowly focused on on, uh, Paul's words. Bottom line is there's greater agreement that this would have been severe physical sickness that brought Paul to the brink of death. And Paul is saying, he's not being dramatic here. He's, you know, that old phrase, if you don't have your health, you don't have anything. 
This was Paul's life in the moment. He said, I was utterly burdened to the point where I was, I was, I, I saw that a, a chance of, of escape or exit was completely unavailable to me. That's, that's what he's saying here in the original language. What we would say today is we, we would have our life flash before our eyes. We would take inventory of all the things that we've done or that we didn't get to do, the things that were on our bucket list or any of those kinds of things. And then we would have that moment of clarity where we would say, so this is how I go. This is, this is the moment that it's all over. All of my wondering, all of my anticipation, I wonder what it's going to be like for me. He came to the realization, I've defined that now. It's very clearly laid out before me. It's hard for me to picture this kind of Paul, to be honest with you. I'm more of the recollection of Paul's strength and zeal when he made statements in Philippians 1, like for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. When Paul says something like that, I just picture this fierce attitude of bring it on. But so much of Paul's writings, as I look closer, and I'm going through this journey of discovering him a little bit more too, as I try to share this with you, is that he is admitting to things like, when I'm with you, I know I'm not real bold. When I'm face to face with you, I know I'm a little timid, but I write much stronger than I want to act like face to face. And I'm, I'm going, but this isn't the Paul I imagined, but the Paul I'm thinking of, the one that I'm most familiar with for the, through the rest of the New Testament began at that moment when he utterly despaired of life itself, that this was the turning point for Paul after all the things that he's gone through and the different persecutions and the sufferings that he had. The point of clarity for Paul was that I can't be Paul anymore. So a new boldness comes upon Paul in this moment. You see, Paul is expressing to us what we all experience, that this created will to live was so strong within him Isn't it strange how we can tell each other? We say it so often at funerals and things that this is uh, just a brief moment of our lives and that we're going to be in eternity for all, uh, we're going to be in heaven for all of eternity and that we say that in such a way that we would want to get there quicker. And so intellectually, we know that's what's waiting for us. We know that that's what's promised to the children of God, but there's this thing in us that says, not yet. I don't want to let this go yet. I, I feel like I would miss so many great things that's going to develop in my children's lives. I've got this, this life that I just kind of go, Lord, I can't believe you put me here and all these things. I don't want to let that go. So no matter how much I know what the word says about how much better it's going to be, I still struggle with this letting go of what I have now, what I know now. You and I have this created will to live. Paul was no different. He might be a spiritual giant but he was no different. We work so hard to avoid suffering or we work so hard to deny the affliction that's going to be a part of our lives. Remember we talked about this last week that if, I think I brought it with me, if the coin of our life that God is holding in his hand is going to be weighted down by the great comfort that we're seeking, I really want that comfort. I'm going to orient my entire life around pursuing this comfort. Lord, I want, I want my life to be weighted down by great comfort. The Lord says in my plan or in my economy that in order for that coin to be weighted down by great comfort, it's going to be weighted down by great suffering. That is the path in which we experience in this life the Lord's great comfort. 
Paul, uniquely called to go through things that hopefully you and I will never have to do, especially as one being called to be an apostle, was set up for us so that we would find comfort and say, if the Lord can bring somebody through that, surely he can get me through my stuff. First Peter tells us this. He says, beloved, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. All of my difficulties and my quote-unquote afflictions, even the ones that are so low and down here, catch me off guard all the time. Do I have any witnesses in this room? Amen and amen. Every time I'm like, I'm going to suffer for Jesus. I can't wait. Hangnail. Oops, I'm out. It's like... I I picture being strong in the big things that I fail to surrender in the smaller afflictions. I want to complain about those things. I want to see them as things that are just impeding my progress in Christ. And Peter is saying, don't be caught off guard, even at the fiery trial, not the light stuff. So, so we're supposed to walk into this and go, I'm not, I'm not even caught off guard by the fact that this raging fire is burning in my life. The grace of God, this isn't something that we muster up or that we strengthen our way through for ourselves. The grace of God is ready and available to be present in those times if we're willing to surrender to it. Paul is telling us through his story that suffering can't be avoided. Secondly, I think he's going to clue us in that you and I can't be the heroes of our own story. I would say that as you and I can't be trusted Verse 9, he continues by saying, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But there was a purpose in that. That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul isn't, again, being overly dramatic when he says this was a death sentence. In other words, Paul needed to come to a place that the disparity of his life was so great that to be rescued with it got him to relate to resurrection. If he just, you know, had a close one or a mild mishap or in our world, a fender bender or something like that, he wouldn't have appreciated the experience of being truly comforted, truly resurrected in the moment that he needed it most. Even our Savior had that moment of knowing that when he laid his life down in utter despair of his life, that resurrection would be the freedom on the other side of that. And so the Apostle Paul needed to come to a place that he couldn't trust himself anymore, that he couldn't believe in whatever strength, and he had a lot of it. His previous career in smashing the way was one of great zeal and strength and a source of pride for him. And we get this, don't we? We we get brought to our knees where the only way of escape can't be me walking through the collapsing buildings and the burning smoke being the hero of my own story because I can't do it. You know, most people do not come to this point until it's too late. Most people don't look for new life until the one they have have has utterly failed them. My, my caution to you, if you're in this state, if, if every time you escape the flames, you get a little bit more invincible and you get, see, there's nothing, no dust on me. Every time that produces that in you, I would warn you, don't presume to have another day to get this right. You're not as heroic as you think. You see, Jesus didn't resurrect Paul's courage or ambitions when he brought him from this point of death. 
Paul would have come out of that saying, see, nothing can touch me. I'm the hero of my own story. Instead, it was Christ, our Savior, that was resurrected within Paul. So the life of Paul was no longer his own, that the resurrection of Christ was what was getting Paul off the ground under this suffering weight and blow of death. We can't be trusted. We cannot be the hero of our own, sh- uh, of our own story. We cannot hoist ourselves on our own shoulders. That would be impossible. So leading us to verse 10, where Paul continues, he said, he, Christ, delivered us from such a deadly peril that he will deliver us. And on him, we have set our hope, not our wishes, but again, our confident expectation. He's been through some stuff. So now he knows who to bank on that he will deliver us again. Paul is saying that God shouldn't even be never be doubted. God should never be doubted in our existence. He's the one that throws us over his shoulder and walks through the burning building. That's what he does. He's a rescuer. He is savior. I love how Paul looks at God's saving in three stages of his life. He says, it's, it's what he did for me. We that are in this room that have received Christ as savior have a did in our life. Historically, Jesus laid it all down for me. He lived a a perfect life, but a sacrificial life for me. He laid it all down and he, and he allowed those to put him in shackles and to end his life. He, he surrendered his own life. They didn't catch him off guard. He laid it down for us. And when he did that, taking on him, all of our sins, it did not keep him in the grave. He resurrected again to new life. What he did for us was beat the power of sin in our lives. What he's doing in the present is he's rescuing us from this, this bag of bones, this body that we're born in that wants to keep going back to that. This flesh that we walk in just wants to keep coming back to the crud. And, and what our savior is presently doing is preaching to us a gospel that is for each and every day. Some of you have been raised in a, in a church environment, for, for instance, where you had a decision to make at one point in your life. For a lot of us, it might have been when we were children. For some of us, maybe when we were in a youth group or maybe after a moving service. And we have relegated the gospel to be a moment in time that we surrendered and we prayed because Jesus presented himself as a savior for my sins. And to that, I'd say amen. It's amazing that we had that opportunity and we heard that voice and we responded to it, but that was not to be left there. That that saving power of Jesus Christ followed us from every day forward and that we are continually rescued from ourselves. So Paul is saying there's a does in God's saving. And then this is a little bit weird to say, but there's a done in the future. Done is a historical word, but he's saying because of the track record, because of Christ's sealing work of the resurrection, our future is set too. that he will save us from the ultimate peril, which is separation from from him. So that regardless of the flames that burn us in this life, regardless of the sufferings that we endure, what Paul is saying is that I am absolutely confident that he will deliver us again. Does that, is Paul saying that the next time the bad guys get him, he knows he's going to escape? No, he's saying ultimately, even if they lob my head off, I know I'm still resurrected and saved because of the power of what Jesus has done. We need to practice 
a Christian life that remembers the did, the does, and the done. All three of those in combination give us amazing hope and give us our direction for a life in Christ. Now, in, in, by way of a, a preview for where we're going with this, in perhaps the climactic verse, if you will, or the verses of this letter, we're going to jump ahead to chapter 12 for just a second and look at verse 9, where Paul says, all of this that I went through yielded this. He said to me, this is God speaking to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. If you want to sum the entire theme of second Corinthians up, you can see, you can sum that up to be power in weakness. Remember last week we said the word power is awfully sexy in our culture today, both inside and outside the church. So to the extent that when the church says power and it leaves it at there, there's people from outside the church going, I'm going to go get some church in me because they're talking about power there. When Paul finishes the sentence, he says it's power in Weakness, which is not so attractive to our world, is it? I, I got to have less of me. I'm trying to get more of me. I thought church had the answer of me finding me. But what the gospel is, is fi- helping us find less of us and, and, and promoting and elevating the true hero of our story. God shouldn't be doubted is what Paul is saying. And then lastly, in verse 11, he gives us some marching orders. He's, he's saying, because of the impact of the story, because of all of us hearing this at once, I'm calling you to do something. Verse 11, he says, you also must help us by prayer so that many, don't you love how Paul keeps putting us in front of an audience? Many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Paul is bringing us before an audience and saying the, the, the surrender that you and I place right now on, okay, I'm going to, like we said last week out of verse five, I'm going to share in Christ's sufferings. I want to identify with my savior. Well, how do I do that? I'm going to not just be like him in imitation, but I'm going to let him live through me. How does he live through me? He prepares me for similar sufferings, even similar to the ones he endured. But it also means because of what Paul is teaching us that that is my true path to comfort, that if I endure those sufferings with patience, I will experience that weighty side of the coin that is the comfort that I thought I was looking for in other places. And we begin to share this not only with our Lord and Savior, we not only identify with the Apostle Paul, but we begin to share this with others. Paul is talking about a big audience here. Remember in the introduction where he said, you're the church of God in Corinth and in all Achaia, reminding them you're on stage, you're on a display here. Paul himself as an apostle knew that whatever comforts I experience, whatever sufferings I experience, it's for you. He knew that he was called to be on display. You and I don't usually sign up in that line. If there's several lines to sign up for, the one that says be on display so that everyone can see how terribly you're about to fail this thing, that line's empty. Nobody goes into that saying, yeah, I want to see, I want the grace of God to be seen in me so much so that the weaker I look, the better for him. It's difficult for us to sign up for that. But Paul is asking us to pray for others to remember we said last week to share this life 
with other people. So how are we going to do that? And I got a real basic, simple preachery kind of answer for you. And I really wanted to come up with something more clever, but it's right here in the text. Who am I to improve it? Simply says by praying for others. Now, Churches pray for people all the time. Churches have prayer groups. We have prayer groups that shake the buildings. We have prayer groups that are with the little old ladies in the corner of the building. We have all kinds of prayer groups. Some that we would see as mighty, some that we would see are un- as ineffective, any of that sort of stuff. Paul is not even talking about the tone of our prayer. He's not talking about the day of our prayer, whether we do it before church or on a Tuesday night. He's not talking about any of those things. What he's talking about is the content of our prayer. So I'm going to encourage us to learn how to pray backwards. So obviously I'm not talking about reversing our language. I'm not talking about turning my back to you so you can't see what I'm saying. But in terms of our interest, in terms of our priority in our schedule or in our outline of prayer, if you will, it's important that we recognize, and please hear this, it's important that we recognize the depths of how sinful we can really be. That I could even take a great action like prayer before my God and turn it into something that satisfies me above all others. Now, we would give each other credit. We'd be like, I saw you in prayer meeting. God must be doing some great things in your life. And we'd be satisfied to see that the Lord is doing those things. But I know the blackness of my heart. I know how I typically pray for things. I start with praying for me in my flesh. I want, I want to be protected. Lord, just give me a good day today. I have things on my agenda that I need to get to. Clear the path for me. Lord, help my spouse understand who I am. Relate to me more favorably. May the kids be obedient today. Can we pay these bills? All the things that will pave a nice, comfortable, wrinkle-free existence for Brent Small. That's where I start if I'm not walking in the Spirit. And then I'll pray for other people. I don't forget you guys. I just pray that you make my job a little easier. I pray that you make my life a little... I pray that you celebrate me more. See, I'm going to pray for you, but I'm going to pray for you and again in a way that I can twist around to build my little kingdom. Or maybe it's, it's for the people that aren't behaving so well. And I'm going to pray for others, but I'm going to say, God, you need to deal with them. Go get them for me. And I think I'm praying in the manner of Paul to protect me. I mean, of David to protect me from my enemies. That's not really the case. And then as I come before the Lord, when I finally get to him addressing his presence in this prayer, I'm probably going to ask him to straighten a few things out to me. I have some answers. I have some questions that need answers. So again, I treat him like the little genie. I'm going to rub the lamp. All right, Lord, you tell me what I need to know. So when I say that we're going to learn how to pray backwards, all I'm saying is to reverse the direction of these things, but not just in terms of order, but in the content in which we pray. I want to start talking to the Lord God as the one who owns the room, the one who, as we read about in Revelation 5, uh, commands, if you will, just by his very sacrifice and presence, my humility, that he's the one that would cause me to fall on my face. When people say that heaven sounds boring, it's like, I don't even know, is there going to be a time period? I know we're in eternity. Is there going to be a time period that any of us are going to want to get off our face? When we finally see him, we've heard all the stories, we've read all the scriptures, we've prayed all the prayers. When we finally see him, it's going to be wonk. We get glimpses of this when the angels show up. 
When an angel show up, everyone hits the, don't kill me, don't. And we think we're going to get bored in heaven. So I'm going to come before the Lord, but I'm going to ask him, God, you are the king of kings and Lord of lords. My path doesn't belong to me. Show me yours instead. Be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path, God. I'm going to spend time in praise and adoration and worship of the true God and king. If I never get to my stuff, then oh well. I kind of did anyway. I'm going to pray for others after I, after I've talked to my Lord, I'm going to ask him to be a blessing and a comfort, truly a comfort to those that are suffering around me. I'm going to be thinking about and rehearsing their needs. I didn't just come to him first thing in the morning with all the stuff that I got to deal with. I'm thinking about what this guy has to deal with instead or this girl over here. So Lord, even if, and it's not really up to us to divvy up amounts of blessings and the Lord owns the cattle in a thousand hills, but just by priority and wish and want, I'm going to come to the Lord and say, even if you withhold the blessing from me and give it to them instead, the Lord understands where we're coming for, from when we pray prayers for others like that. It's, it's like we, we understand from the scriptures again that we are esteeming others' needs more important than our own. And yes, I'm going to pray about me. I'm not going to ignore me from the equation, but I'm going to ask the Lord to, to give me humility. I'm going to ask the Lord to do the things in my heart that, that lead towards self-control. The things of the fruit of the Spirit. I, Lord, I want others to see that in me. I'm not hiding the fact that I want to be on display. You've just shown me through Paul's life that you can be on display in a very humble way. So I guess I'm offering myself to you to do the things in me that you want others to see. But, but help me, Lord, to be humble about those things, which when you're really walking in me, you have no choice. Because as Paul would have discovered, when you're not the one saving your own hide, there's no way to, to brag about yourself. So I'm going to learn to pray backwards instead of the place that my, my knee-jerk reactions and my flesh go. That's one way I can share this life with others. Another way I can share in the comforts and the sufferings of others is to share my story. You know, I, I'm tired of hearing in American Christianity that my, my religion's private and personal. It's very near and dear to me. That's why I keep it locked in like this. I don't hear that a lot here at Faith. I think, you know, a lot of us get the point that we're to share this life with other people, but, but it really angers me, I guess, because why would Jesus have gone through all that if he truly rescued you from the fires of hell, if he put your feet on a solid rock and moved you in a direction? Why would he say, but it's okay if you just keep all that to yourself? I know I did all that, but you know, don't worry about it. Don't put any more pressure on yourself. Of course he wouldn't say that. When we share our stories, uh, and, and some of the, the tips, if you will, I hate to put it in that regard, but some pointers or whatever helps along the lines of sharing the story or can be found in your notes. When we do this in a way that shows God's completed work in us, there's a whole lot he hasn't finished yet. We know this. But there are things that he's taught us that we could say, I can close the chapter in that part of my life and the Lord has shown me what. If I'm unwilling to share that, I'm also unwilling to encourage others. Our stories really do an amazing thing when other people like you and me tell what God has done. It's why we do what we do at baptisms. I can get up here and tell us all what we're supposed to do. Follow God in the waters of baptism. Be obedient. Here's the scripture. Everyone's like, hey, get it. The preacher wants me to be baptized. When someone else says this is what the Lord did in my life and led me to that point, we go, oh, I get it. I can do that now. It's a miracle. When we hear somebody like us, 
describe it or experience what they've gone through. It changes. So I have a movie clip for us to illustrate this point. It will be no surprise to about 75% of you in the room that this movie clip comes from the Lord of the Rings franchise because I am a nut when it comes to Middle Earth. And uh, But I couldn't help it. I'm trying not to force it in here, and I promise this won't be an every-other-week occurrence where you're going to have to eventually watch all 12 hours of The Lord of the Rings like my family can do in a weekend. I'll spread it out, all right? But the point is I couldn't escape this thought as I was understanding the encouragement that comes from us sharing our story, and even even bigger than just what God's brought us through, but what he will do, even if we weren't spared uh, of, of a perilous time in this earth, what he will ultimately do for us. So, Ron, I forgot to cue that there's a really loud beginning to this and a really loud end of this clip. So as it looks like dialogue's winding down, you might want to... Anyway, let's check it out. Sorry, that was the loud part that I was trying to... (laughs) But you're intrigued now, aren't you? Got your attention, woke you up before I send you out. The little hobbit, of course, represents us and all of our timidity and fear of facing life's trials. You know, the wizard wasn't promising that they would win that battle. He didn't know. So their life might have been coming to an end. And if you still haven't seen it after like 20 years of it being out, I won't spoil the end. But our stories matter. Someone said that our stories take God's truth to the struggles of life and present strong reasons not to give up. Earlier we read in 1 Peter that Peter told us, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But he continues and says, But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. 
Do you tell your story to others, sometimes perhaps even unwittingly, but just through the lens of suffering only? Is all that they hear from you or all the negative things that are going on, the things that have no no closed chapter, we're not beyond this part yet. And so you're used to telling people about you, but it's this unending kind of rolling drama that never seems to have any conclusion. Maybe you're on the other end and all your stories have you as the hero walking out of the burning building with the weight of the world on your shoulders. You're always the most victorious. I think somewhere in the middle of all of that, found in Christ, with our hope, which again is our confidence, our story can be told through the lens of rescue of our God that we would be able to present to others the true comfort that we have found. Not in everything all the time. Our stories are still incomplete. I appreciate, I don't see her here. I think she'll be here second service, but our little sweetheart, Pat Payne, who uh, walks around with an oxygen tank and it's got a name for it. Is it George or something like that? Here's, here's, how, here's how Pat always starts a story. She goes, you want to hear what God did? No, Pat, I don't. I don't have time to hear what God did. Of course, I'm not going to say that. Who says that? She goes, you want to hear what God did? You see, she's, she's understanding the fact that God has been up to something and she got to witness it. I have another friend from years ago that used to just say, I just thank the Lord that he gave me the eyes to see what he's up to. So do you want to hear what God did? That's a way to tell a story. So let me ask you this. Will you make every effort to practice? I mean, practice, absorb, think about, uh, uh, wrestle with the concept of what God did, what he does and what he will do in his resurrection, in his rescue in your life. Will you share in the sufferings of those around you to help carry the burdens of their lives? Will you make them the priority? Or will you continue to just try to survive? Hey, I just, I got my own stuff to deal with. I got to get through my own thing. Will you share your script with others in a way that makes Jesus the hero that he is? The only true savior that we have. This life is only practice for the one to come as we just heard from Gandalf. That this isn't the end. This is just another path, one that we all must take. We don't earn our spot by living for others. We're not good deeding this thing up. But what we do is that we show the resurrected Christ living in us. And that's the only place that others can find true comfort in and in rescue. I'm going to ask you to stand as we close in prayer this morning. God, I am so thankful, Lord, that you are on display. I heard a song last week, Lord, where somebody said, take a bow because you steal the show. God, we in our humanity try to upstage you at all points of our lives. But you will not be outdone. You're too mighty and powerful. But Lord, you're so gracious at the same time. that You won't flick us off the stage. You'll cast us. Find a part for us. But Lord, because of your holiness, it will be surrounded on your majesty, your greatness and your glory. All we have, Lord, this morning is to be willing to put you on display. And that can change for every individual in this room right now, Lord. Offering it up, but offering up our weakness as well, that tomorrow we'll want to rewrite the script, and Tuesday we'll do it again, Wednesday we will, and each incremental place of surrender you will use to a deeper degree in our hearts and in our lives. 
Eventually, Lord, we will walk more and more and more in you, only waiting to be rescued from this, from this side of eternity. So, Lord, send us out in, in your boldness, Lord. Send us out in your trust for your care. In Jesus' name, amen.